When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hey folks, welcome to Insights, where our guest this hour is American Roots music pioneer, Jesse Colin Young. From the countercultural and revolutionary era of the 1960s, leading the Youngbloods and making his mark with hits like Get Together, all the way into the 21st century with albums including Dreamers and Highway Troubadour, Jesse Colin Young has remained a wildly inspiring figure in music, a multifaceted American music icon. We're so glad to have Jesse Colin Young on the show today and to be able to share his conversation with Amy Wright with you right now. So let's get started. You're listening to Insights from Diddy TV. First of all, I wanted to say happy birthday. You had a big birthday in the fall. Mm. And yes, uh, how did you celebrate? How did I celebrate? Well, um, we haven't seen our kids um, for a co- two years. So at the beginning of November, um, there are two or three. There's three of us have birthdays in November. Me, I'm not a, no longer a kid, only in my mind. And uh, <laughs> my daughter and son, my godson, they're all in Northern California. And then Jazzy, um, whom you know from her work on Trouble and the, a wonderful EP that she released last year called Grown Up and Grown Apart. She drove up from L.A., so we gathered um, in a little house on Tamales Bay, where that was my... That was my introduction in 1967 to California. And uh, young bloods were living in New York at that time. And I just fell in love with Marin, um, the county just north of San Francisco. And, you know, we played the Avalon once and we all ran home and packed our stuff <laughs> and, and moved. Uh, the and great migration west. <laughs> yes, because, yeah. You know, in 1967, not many people know, Get Together was people who were there. It, it was a hit in the Bay Area and on the North Coast, maybe all the way to Seattle, but nowhere else in the country. But I mean, we walked uh, and we had no idea. We came in, we played the Avalon, we got, we're on the radio, really, and the audience loved us and we realized we, we needed to make our home there. So we moved after you know, three or four years on the Lower East Side, uh, I, I'd been there twice that long because I was going to NYU. Um, we were ready for the country and God, it's so beautiful out there. So that's how the birthday was spent. We all celebrated all of our uh, birthdays uh, together. Wow, it sounds like a great time. Anyone yeah. play any music? Did you whip out the guitar? You know, we didn't. We didn't get around to that. Uh, that often happens. Um, 
we had so much to talk about after having not seen each other for so long that, uh, yes, the, the jawing went on <laughs> into late in the evening. It was wonderful. And we got, to, we got to do, we got to walk. I got to walk where my old house was on Tomales Bay, which is now a park. Thank God it's not a, uh, you know, a... Uh, Strip mall or something. <laughs> yes. Because Marin, that part of Marin, because of all the parkland, um, has stayed incredibly just like it was when I lived there 30 years ago. That's and, a miracle, isn't it? Yeah, it's a miracle. It is a miracle. I just... What a thr and what a thrill that was for me to think, well, wow, this is one part is not spoiled yet and not going to be really. It was John Kennedy who went through there um, with our senator, state senator, Peter Bear, who lived up on the ridge um, right down the road from me. And John Kennedy said, have you, um, you know, from the top of our ridge to the ocean was just ranch land. And Kennedy said, have you seen what has happened to, uh, where is he, where is Chappaquiddick and all that stuff? It's on Cape Cod. Mm -hmm. He's, have you seen what has happened to Cape Cod? He said, that's going to happen right here. If you don't make a park out of this, um, you know, you're going to turn around and there'll be houses all the way to the ocean. And so uh, Senator Baer worked on that uh, for years. And finally, it, it became National Seashore. And now it is still, it's still there, just like it was when I arrived in 1967 and said, where is everybody? There's, I went to the beach and there were two people. Um, and one of them was three quarters of a mile away. Uh, I was amazed and so beautiful. It's incredible it, how much is accomplished by a handful of people that wanted to preserve the parkland in this country. Right. It's a uh, thank goodness for those those people. Uh, well, where did you grow up, Jesse? I was born when I uh, in Queens, uh, New York. So I grew up in an apartment there. It was kind of neat because it was apartments all around a block, and a big block, and then the inside was grass. So we actually had we actually had a sledding hill and. Uh, and lots of places to play stickball. My sister was a, she played with us. She was older. She was good. <laughs> um, so were you playing yes. music or were your parents, were they musicians or did they yes. encourage you to play? My dad played piano. He was a classical pianist, um, but not a professional. But I mean, he, uh, he was an accountant, but he would come home and unwind playing the piano. And then, of course, um, having been the first man in his uh, family to go to college, um, he had to t teach us all of the uh, Harvard fight songs about how they kick Yale's ass. <laughs> and so <laughs> besides all the camp songs, and my mom had a beautiful, a beautiful voice, mezzo, soprano. Um, I wonder if she was an alto. I don't know. It was beautiful. And my sister and I both came up on with the voice. Um, 
you know, part of it was genetics and part of it was until it was 10, there was no TV in our house and they resisted it. And it was, it was, it was great for us because we, and there was no radio in my father's car because he was an accountant. He, he wanted, he was being thrifty. And <laughs> so we sang and, you know, and we were bored, we sang. And on a college trip, we sang. And uh, on holidays, we sang. And um, yeah, I got a lot of singing in there. And I, I made my, I made my debut at his, uh, his Harvard reunion, what was it? Life Begins at 50 for the class of 25. Um, they found out that I knew all the Harvard fight songs. So they put me up on a cocktail table. I think I was eight. And there was an accordionist there who made his living, you know, knowing all of the college. So he knew them all. And uh, I had a little concert. Um, yeah, and that was the beginning. Did you start writing music when you were a kid or was that much later? I, I probably started when they sent me off to, uh, well, actually, I wanted to go to prep school. Um, I had come out of a, a wonderful high school in Garden City, Long Island, and we had moved to Bucks County, Pennsylvania. My father moved jobs and was, was not as, uh, was not as, as uh, as strong a school, so my dad suggested that I apply to, or maybe it was my uncle, just uh, suggested I I apply to Andover, and uh, I took the train into New York and did the, did all the tests and I got in. Um, I had no idea uh, what I was doing, but. I got there as uh, in the beginning of 11th grade and found that they were offering guitar as an elective. And I had played the piano um, for years, but never really connected with it because, well, I mean, as soon as rock and roll came on the radio, um, I didn't want to play whatever kind of So song. where were you listening to the radio, though, if your dad didn't have one in the car? Were you sneaking yeah, around? I was listening <laughs> at home. Um, we moved out of the apartment, and then I ended up with my own room and my own radio when I was 10. And guess who came on the air in that same year? Alan Freed. And then at the other end of the dial was Symphony Sid. So there was doo-wop from wall to wall. And I, I found that I could, I could leave my radio on all night if I turned it way down. But it was in my head. It was in a little headboard thing. So it was really close to my ear. And I leave it on all night. So it was on for three or four years. <laughs> and I was soaking up music while in dreamland, uh, both awake and asleep. So you started playing guitar while you were in boarding school. Did you like boarding school? Because that's a little bit, that's a lot different than, than, mm. than going to a more traditional high school. Or did you like it? Did I like it? No, I didn't like it. But um, 
but it was really, it was really good for me because um, the workload was tremendous. And I just, um, you know, I went from an hour of homework a night in public school to six hours at Andover. I mean, going in the 11th grade is a, probably a, uh, pretty tough. That's a tough year. So I learned, you know, I think I learned everything I needed to learn about work and my capacity for jumping into things that I didn't know about and, and being able to do it, learn how to do it. Um, I credit Andover for my, uh, when I wanted to build a recording studio, I had no idea how to either design the building or, and or use the equipment. And I just said, I'm gonna do it. I'm tired of flying to LA to go to a studio. I'm gonna build one right here in this gully. And it, although the house burned down in 95 on the ridge top in a forest fire, the, uh, the studio down in the gully um, remained. The fire skipped over it. The fireman said with all the hundred foot trees that all the oxygen was being sucked out by them burning at the top where all the fuel was. And there was no oxygen down to burn up the studio. What a what a blessing! My godson lives there. It, uh, Jazzy cut the tracks for "Grown Up and Grown Apart," her her mm. first EP uh, there on the ridge top. So, did you build another house after your house burned down? No, I uh, I said I can't do this again. Let's we're, we're supposed to get out of here. So. Um, we had a little place in Hawaii, very little. Um, I mean, we, when we bought that little farm, it was just a getaway and there were the two, two of us, Connie and I, and by, by uh, 95, Jazzy was a year and Tristan, our son was four. So off we went to uh, Hawaii for a new adventure, turning um, the boy from Queens into a farmer. <laughs> makes a lot of doing. Connie had always been a, her mother said, from the time she could uh, sit or stoop, she was planting things and seeds and has always loved it. But I, I know nothing about farming and I, I learned about it and loved it for a while. Uh, and do, you still, we, do you still own the farm in Hawaii? We still own the farm and sadly we have just uh we have just rust has uh, uh been attacking the coffee farms on in all over hawaii and it finally has we had to cut our orchard down not the tree trunks but all all the branches anything with a leaf on it um of our crop uh, so there won't it's been wonderful. I mean, it's been, we've had a crop since 1990. And uh, so for the next three years, you know, hopefully um, we'll find a way um, to grow it back. Yeah, I mean, it will grow back whether the rust will, it's been kind of the close the book on this, 
I don't know what I'm going to do when I run the coffee. <laughs> I'm so <clears throat> I'm, I'm so fond of uh, ours. Well, to go back a little ways, because we mm -hmm. want to see how you got started with the uh, the Young Bloods, and mm -hmm. and you had a a massive hit get together yeah. that you probably didn't even anticipate having. So, just you get out of high school. Did you go to college? Or yeah, I started. Um, I got kicked out of Andover about two months before graduation. My poor broke my father's heart, <laughs> <laughs> but it was really where I needed to go because I was thrown out for playing the guitar at the wrong time during study hours. Um, and uh, that, was a, that was a big flag for me. Uh, so I went out to Ohio State because um, they had tried, they had come to Andover and trying to get some um, boys for their uh, accelerated program they were starting. So off I went and uh, moved in behind a record store. And that's where I was meant to be. That's he, uh, I couldn't afford all the records, but I had a tape recorder. And I wish I could remember his name, but he said, listen, there was no shrink wrap. Just, just take the record home. This is T-Bone Walker, this guy really something. Take it home and play it once and tape it and then bring it back. We just put it back in the rack as long as you don't scratch. <laughs> so <laughs> there I was um, discovering T-Bone Walker, B.B. King, Ray Charles. Um, the greats. Discovering the, the roots of what I had been hearing and what Elvis brought forward, because that's what he was listening to. I mean, it turns out that everyone was listening to T-Bone Walker. Chuck Berry was listening to T-Bone Walker. B.B. King was listening to T-Bone Walker and his mother. Amazing. What a great well, education. What, huh? I said, what a great musical education to live right behind a record store. Yes, and that's where I belonged, and that's really what I did. Mostly I, I did that. And uh, uh, I went to my ROTC class and tried to learn how to polish my shoes properly in for ROTC. Because... Uh, Ohio State's a land-grant college, and you have to uh, do two years uh, of ROTC. So I didn't get through two years. I, um, but I, I did tape a lot of records, and then I read Jack Kerouac's On the Road, and I, I had to take a trip and in the middle of winter. This was after one, <laughs> after one um, wasn't even a semester, they were quarters at Ohio State. Uh, my poor father. I said, Dad, I, I just need, I need to hitchhike. I lived in the suburbs all my life. I don't know anything about life. Um, I wanna find out. Crazy. Well, that was such a turbulent, times these are changing, you know, point in history. And you're kind of living through that and maybe going from some, something that was more conservative to a society that was going to really change in the 60s. And what was that like for you? When did you actually form the Young Bloods as a band? Were you, was it 
after Ohio State, or were you back in New York? Yes, or? after Ohio State, um, I bought a Triumph motorcycle, and I had to spend a year working in a factory, living at home um, with my parents to get it fixed up enough to... <laughs> Because uh, I think drive that, across country in it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to complete my on the road dream. Right. I, I mean, ever since I saw Marlon in um, the Wild Ones, and which I probably saw ten times as a child, I always wanted a Triumph. That's what he had in that movie. They all had Triumphs, and it wasn't a Harley to be seen. And uh, this, yeah. So, and. And then I transferred to NYU. So NYU is in the village. I really didn't know. You know, I grew up in Queens, but I was just a kid. My mother took me to the opera. She took me to uh, see ballet and things like that. But I mean, I, I didn't know. I don't think she knew where Greenwich. Well, maybe she did. Her dentist was in Greenwich Village. But I, it was just pure serendipity that I transferred in 1961 or two to NYU, which is right on the square. And I could see the fountain out the window of my classes and see them, especially in the afternoon, see that the music starting to happen and people playing guitars and so after a year of school, I, I quit. And, and then I spent a year um, playing in the basket houses uh, in Greenwich Village. And I was on a rent strike. It was the only way I could afford, you know, so I could live on $10 a day and feed myself. So if that's all I made, that was fine. And Someone came and saw me and uh, sent me to Bobby Scott, a marvelous jazz pianist who was working for Bobby Darren at that point. And he loved me and just thought, I, he thought, he says, you're so ignorant. It's just marvelous. <laughs> and of course I was. I mean, I played by myself. I learned to play by ear. I mean, last time I read music, I was 10. Um, so... I think, um, and I had been playing no gigs really until I, I started playing the basket houses and then that was my complete experience. But somehow halfway through that year, he took me into the studio and said, okay, kid, sit over there and play everything you know. And four hours later, I, I had an album called Soul of a City Boy. And he had picked the tunes as I went through, and he had arranged them in order, and it was done. I mean, when we walked out of there, we had a, I had a copy of Soul of a City Boy. Actually, they didn't give me a copy. He, he had a copy. Um, so that when it came out, um, I went right to work in the folk houses and mostly in Boston, like the Club 47. And the first song on the 
album is four in the morning and there was a DJ in Boston on an AM station, rock station that started, he was on at like 10 o'clock at night. He started playing folk music, kind of, because Boston was the center of the really, of the, uh, of the folk revolution. As far as venues, they must've been in the Boston area. There must've been 30 clubs. You know, there were only three in Manhattan that were, uh, so I was up there a lot and I met Jerry Corbett up there. Um, he sent me a little note at my sound check once that said, don't go home. And uh, he said, "Come to, don't go home, go to my place. And I guess the place I was staying, that, that guy was being arrested for selling pot to the Coast Guard undercover. And I ended up at Corbett's house. And then I started always staying with him. And we, we just started playing on the porch. And he started showing up at my gigs. Beautiful harmonica player. And that lovely baritone voice that you hear on Get Together underneath mine. Um, and it just happened. And, you know, after a year of, of that and me teaching him uh, my whole, um, all the songs that I was playing at that point, he, we kind of looked at each other one day and said, I think we ought to get an amplifier. Now this is, and a couple of pickups. I just, I, I think it's time for us to have a band. I mean, the Beatles were very inspiring. Uh, a, you know, a band that was not just writing silly songs about what we all knew about. Um, and really, and then we couldn't find a bass player and McCartney, of course, for me was a, well, he's doing it. It must be able to be done. I'd, I'm going to play bass because um, we had three guitar players and a drummer and um, no bass player and we couldn't find one. So I went. You picked it up. <laughs> yes. And so it was doubly exciting for me. The first, you know, year or two of the Youngbloods, I'm learning a new instrument where and also learning how to use monitors and hear myself with a whole lot of, because I was playing solo until Corbett. And then we, you know, played duo for a while, but that was. So at that yeah. point, you were officially the Youngbloods. You had, that's your name and you're calling yourself that and you're playing around Boston. Mostly Greenwich Village. Oh, mostly spent, Greenwich Village, okay. We, we spent a, uh, uh, almost a year at the Cafe of Gogo. And we would open for whomever, whether it was Muddy Waters or Ian and Sylvia, who were uh, headlining. They'd stick us in there and give us each $20. So that, luckily, you know, an apartment was 70 bucks a month in the, on the Lower East Side. So we were able to do it. And, we, and then our manager started bringing you know, record company people down and, uh, I mean, we started out as Jesse Colin Young and the Lonely Nights or, and the, or the Jerry Corbett Three or the, 
I forget there were a couple other names <laughs> that went through there. And then finally, we just, we settled on Young Bloods and, uh, and RCA came along and uh, uh, gave us the right, which was difficult to do in those days, to choose our own producer. And because uh, we had, we wanted Felix Papalardi and he was not a, an establishment figure at that point, just a, just a brilliant musician and a, and a good friend. And uh, so they said, okay, and that was it. And uh, yeah, so there we are, we've got the record deal, we've got the producer we wanted, and, and uh, we started recording. So what year did you put out your first album? I'm trying to think. Um, 66, I think. Grizzly Bear was released. I don't know whether they released the, the album first or just Grizzly Bear because my daughter Julie was born in 66. That's why I know. And we called her Julie Bear because Grizzly Bear was on the radio. So, yeah, that fall we must have released because usually they released the album in those days and then singles on top of that. Was Get Together on that first album? It is. And that's when they released Get Together after Grizzly Bear as a single. And that's when it was a hit in San Francisco and the North Coast. And that's, that's what took us out of New York uh, to Point Reyes, California and building studios. And What was that experience like when, when you put out an album and you're sort of yanked out of not obscurity, but in a sense, obscurity. You know, there's a handful of people who know who you are. And then you have this song that goes viral, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you were living through that experience, was it exciting? Was it pressure-filled? Because you have one hit, now you got to keep writing and coming up <laughs> with new hits. <laughs> How does that work? Well, it worked differently for us because Get Together was a hit twice. Um, in 67, it was a, a, a North Coast hit. And, you know, instead of 40 or 100 people we were drawing in New York, I mean, we could, we could fill the Avalon Ballroom. And we had, um, because it was the summer of love and get together was just the natural theme song. So that's why it was all over the radio. And it, it, it was just, it, it was happening. And uh, so that for a long time, we, we played between there and, and New England colleges and, and the West Coast. That's mostly where we played for the, and then in, the, in 69 in June, um, Augie Bloom, who was the head of promotion at uh, RCA said, we have to re, -re release get together again i think he you know he said now is the time but the rest of the country has kind of come around and uh i think he could smell woodstock nation coming but what what an instinct and he forced them he threatened to quit and uh, they would have been fools to let augie was the best in the business um so he said we're putting this out, but we don't do that, Augie. Yes, we do. 
because it is time. And of course he was right, it was time. So then Get Together was a, a national hit and we started playing, you know, all over the country instead of just on the, on the coast. Were you at Woodstock or? No, I, what a mistake, I don't know. We were at, we were at one of Bill Graham's booked in uh, one of his venues that weekend. I can't remember the name of it and it wasn't. Uh, and I wish, I don't know what happened. I don't know, it would have been just perfect for us, but uh, we missed it. But the music was there. I think Richie Havens probably sang it. He was there. And he had been there in the go-go with us coming along trying to, when we uh, were just breaking out and he was breaking out. Well, it was, it was such an iconic, iconic hit record. It sort of symbolized everything that was going on at that time in the late 60s. And like you said, everyone, you know, coming together. And um, a after, after that period, you sort of embarked on a solo career. And um, when, when, when was that in the 70s, sort of right mm -hmm. after this? Probably 72. Yeah. Um, Corbett left the Youngbloods in the middle of Elephant Mountain. Is that the album that had Darkness, Darkness on it? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we ended up being a trio for almost all of that album. I think Corbett played on a couple songs, never did any vocals. So, and he left to go form a band with Charlie Daniels, which they did. But we completed that album as a trio and played like that for a while, for a couple of years. And, and then it just wore thin for me. I got, I was ready. I don't know. I was listening to the band. I was listening to music from Big Pink. I was listening to Taj Mahal. I wanted something funkier, especially as a bass player. Um, and I think it was time for me to go back to guitar. Um, so, so I let go. I said, Young Bloods is over, guys. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't do it anymore. Um, but we had, you know, we had Raccoon Records. Warner Brothers gave us a label and everybody was, I was able to make a solo album, an acoustic album. And that was part of my learning that I was ready to, to get on with something new. And, uh, but all the guys did. Joe, our drummer, he recorded his favorite jazz people. And uh, Banana recorded a bluegrass group called High Country that, uh, so it was time. It was time for me to move on. So as a solo artist, did that enable you to musically explore some things that maybe would, would have been harder to explore as, as a member of a band? For example, I know that there are a number of social and environmental causes that are near and dear to your heart. Mm -hmm. And maybe as a solo artist, you could just explore those topics more easily. Um, yeah, I, um, I was meant to be a solo artist because I'm, I like being the boss. I was <laughs> talked into 
um, giving that up in the young bloods, and it was well, it couldn't have been a mistake, but I, I mean, it was not easy for me because I was used to kind of leading the charge and figuring out things. And uh, Corbett and I were kind of on the same page, but um, but Joe and Banana were on a different trip. And so there was always tension there. And then when Corbett left, um, I was really, I was in a band with guys that I was not terribly close to personally, which was a little peculiar. I mean, we could play together and some of the stuff we did as a trio early on was pretty, um, it amazed me, but um, I, I outgrew it pretty fast. You know, I missed the, uh, I mean, really, a lot of my best friends in my life have been the people in my bands, and we've shared all that stuff that you go through um, to come together, to make it work, to make a living at it, to um, get what you need from it. All of those things make pretty strong friendships, or have for me. And, uh, but, I, I really like, I like being the boss and um, that worked better. And it worked for a while. It was a, that was a wonderful band that uh, I kind of call it the Song for Julie band because that's the first record we released um, after the Young Buds. I just kind of went in um, and I had learned how to operate my studio. I had to... Uh, um, and I was, <laughs> first I had to learn how to build it and engineer the walls and I said really you can't make the walls parallel and, no no and you, angles are everything because you don't want sound bouncing back and forth between in a box because uh, it creates standing waves and, and trouble so I you were, and you were raising a family during this time period yeah yeah, um, Julie was born in 66, and uh, Cheyenne in 70. Yep. And build my house. And, uh, or, not me. No, I'm, but I was part of it. It was wonderful. When they first put up the floor, there were no walls. The floor and the way we we were such a, on a steep slope that just the floor of the house in the front was, you know, it looked like it ran all the way to Tamales Bay. It was uh, that was a beautiful experience to watch it go up and kind of saying, "God, I wish we didn't have to put walls." <laughs> yeah. Could you see the water from your house? Yeah, but we're not looking at the ocean. We're looking, um, we're looking east at this long skinny bay, which is shaped like a tamale. So Tamales Bay, that's um, all the names there. I mean, all of that was part of Mexico or Spain. And, uh, uh, but it's beautiful. And this mountain called Elephant Mountain, which we saw, I'm looking across this beautiful little bay 
at Elephant Mountain, which uh, kind of looks like it. I guess if you're high enough, it looks like an elephant lying on its side. Um, Was that your favorite place to write music? Yes, at, yeah, at home. I mean, for me, living there in the woods was, you know, my, my parents sent me to camp in the Adirondack Mountains when I was probably eight or nine. They had to get rid of me in the summer. I get, I, I, you know, I, I understand having raised four children. Um, and, uh, but I was, I, I think I dreamed about living in the forest from those those two or three years in the Adirondack Mountains and swimming in that lake. Uh, yeah. I've been dreaming about ridgetops since that time and uh, never really realized it and until young bloods, we just moved out to the country from the Lower East Side. And uh, that was a big leap for us, but we thought, well, we can do this. We're self-contained. We don't, um, and it's an hour and a half to the city and we can work. So as a songwriter, I know that in 2002, I believe, Robert Plant covered Darkness, Darkness. Actually, a lot of artists, I think, have covered that song, but he was up for a Grammy nomination for that song. How does it feel as a songwriter to see someone else performing your work and maybe taking it in a different direction? Oh, it was lovely. Uh, he called me. I don't know how he got my number. I was living in Hawaii because um, that's where we ended up in 95 when the house burned down on the ridgetop. At, and that's a little house. And then we made it a little bigger because there were four of us, not two of us. Um, yeah, and, and he, he said he was in the back of a taxi uh, and it was midnight or something. I think it's almost 12 hours, 11 or 12, you know, Hawaii to London. And uh, he said, I'm recording Darkness, Darkness, and I want you to hear what I'm doing. And uh, so I gave him my address. And I don't think we were sending music over the internet yet, um, or I wasn't anyway. So it was wonderful. He sent me five different, they were doing different mixes for all different kinds of radio. And uh, I love what he did to Darkness. Um, and he did, he got a Grammy. Yeah, it's a pretty cool version of the song. And um, so let's sort of move into modern day era. Mm -hmm. you, quit, you quit playing music for a bit and uh, more recently decided to get back at it again. So why, <laughs> why did you uh, walk away for just a bit? Lyme disease, yeah, took me out. Seriously, but I spent, I spent years walking through those woods in West Marin. When I first moved out there, there was a guy between me and the ocean, there was a guy who ran a few cows in that, you know, hundreds or thousands of acres or whatever. And I only met him once, but I, I, I could walk 
through those woods blazing my own trails and never see a soul, but see herds of white deer. Somebody had, you know, 30 or 40 years before that had brought deer from Bavaria or somewhere, mm. these beautiful white deer. And uh, <laughs> they, you know, there were hundreds of them in the park. Um, and seals on the beach at the end of Lemonter Spit. Um, I was there when I could actually ride my dirt bike out onto the beach and get on the hard part of the sand, which was, you know, if the tide was going out and ride out to the end of the spit. The I remember the first time I did it and the seals, I had no idea there'd be a bunch of, you know, there were 50 seals out there sunning themselves at the end of the spit and they, they jumped in the water, but they only went out about 10 feet and then they all poked their heads up and said, what is this thing? It doesn't smell like a man. It didn't look like a man. You know, I had a helmet on and a, so, I mean, they didn't run away. They just kind of, it was, I mean, to come out of the Lower East Side and to have that kind of experiences with uh, wildlife for me was just uh, ecstatic. I feel like I'd, I'd gone to heaven. Did you, did you actually get out on the water? Were you into boating or? Anything? No, I didn't. No, about boats and I don't get along. Under the water, I'm fine. I, I did become a scuba diver, but um, did most of my diving in Hawaii because it's awfully cold. That uh, I wasn't used to the, you know, the Pacific Ocean is cold. And, uh, you know, Jones Beach is, the water's warm in the summer. So I never got used to the cold water, although. But I did get in it occasionally. And when I did, I was all alone down there on that beach. Unbelievable uh, for a New Yorker like me to find himself looking way, way down the beach a half mile away. There's one other person and thinking, how, how can this be? So along with all those blessings and that heaven came, tick bites and uh, nobody was, this was before Lyme disease was named, before some guy named Bergdorf, Bergdorf discovered or isolated the, uh, you know, it's been so long, I forget there's some little critter that carries the Lyme disease, I mean, in your blood. Um, the ticks injected, but so it caught up with me and just, you know, for five or six or seven years, I, I struggled with it. And beyond that, I mean, I'd had it probably for since, you know, the late sixties. And um, I think when the house burned down, the trauma of that, I was, so connected to that land, uh, the land I wrote that uh, ridgetop about, and uh, it was traumatic. And we moved to Hawaii after that because, you know, we had a spare house. We were lucky, and 
I had always wanted to live in the islands, and but uh, Lyme disease said, "Oh, nice the time he's, you know, he's down." So it really, it reared its head, and of course nobody knew what it was. Nobody was, um, no doctor that I went to was even testing for it. Um, so I just thought I was, you know, I was having PTSD from the, uh, um, and tried to work my way through it, but it, it, it was tough. But that's but over. You're, but you're it's back. <laughs> yeah, I'm back. <laughs> Thanks to my marvelous <clears throat> Dr. Richard Horowitz, um, one of his protocols, his wife, you know, for a while, people with what we call chronic Lyme, uh, the AMA was denying that there was such a thing. They said, no, you get Lyme disease, you take uh, doxycycline for three weeks, it's done. Yeah, well, those of us who had taken doxycycline for three years and uh, knew that it didn't just it didn't just go away. And uh, his wife had the same, uh, Richard's wife had the same disease and he kept experimenting with different protocols. And two or three years ago, I, I came off the road and because uh, I knew it and, and tried this six week protocol of uh, six different drugs at the same time. And it's gone. Amazing. Yeah. Oh God. You know, and, and I have my life back. Well, and I, I know that last year, twenty twenty one, was uh, there was a big anniversary hour. You were playing. I saw a tape of you online playing. Get together with um, Steve Miller. Yeah, Steve Miller. Yeah. Um, I. Yeah, we, I wanted to make a new version of it. I had recorded, um, so I started to get better in like 2016 or 15, um, because Richard was treating me for years and years to some effect, but it kept coming back. Um, so, and, and, and Connie and I started writing and I hadn't written, I don't know, I hadn't written a song for five years. And um, our son was at Berkeley College of Music, Tristan. And I went to his, his senior recital and um, it just blew me away. I ran backstage afterwards and said, gee, I want, I, want a, I want a band like this. He said, come on, dad, you're, you're, not, you're not ready for this. You know what it's like. It's way too much work. I said, T, I'm, I'm getting better. I, I want it. It's... And so after he finally agreed to help me put a band together, I mean, because these were all his, and the band ended up being all his friends and acquaintances from Berkeley, all of them in their 20s, and um, all of them marvelous young geniuses 
wow, we made a record together called Dreamers. I think that came out in 18, because uh, I think I played three or four gigs with them. I, I thought it was going to be just a quick um, go to South by, get ready, go to South by, and then it'd be over. And no, I, uh, after playing those warm up gigs with them, I said, I want to record with these youngsters. And uh, we did in Nashville. It sounds like playing with your son was inspiring. It was, and all of them. So, so young and so, so good. <laughs> but I mean, and uh, yeah, their energy, it was amazing. It was a, um, a beautiful time. Yeah. And, your, and your daughter is a musician as well, Jazzy. You said yes. earlier that she put out an yeah. album and, yes, and, you, and, and, a, and a single that y'all just released, Trouble. Yes. And Jazzy, Jazzy's been writing songs since she was, I don't know, 11 or 12. And um, I remember my son Cheyenne said to me once when he was visiting, and she had, she, she didn't play for anybody very much, but occasionally she'd play for the family or she'd write a new song and she'd play for Connie and I. And uh, I think Cheyenne heard one of them and dad. He said, Dad, is there somebody, some kid that I should beat up? Because <laughs> the songs were so sophisticated, relationship songs, deep. Um, and, she, you know, she was 12. So, yeah. And so last year she released her first EP, Grown Up and Grown Apart. Beautiful songs, all of them. And um, less... But, you know, when I used to take her to school in Hawaii when she was in grade school, she, yeah, she was a wonderful, uh, beautiful singer. Her boy, very strong. And, um, but I used to, either I, would, I used to sing trouble a lot. I think I was having trouble with Lyme disease, so it became my theme song <laughs> to myself. And I so... Jazzy always thought it was my song because I would sing it in the truck or I would play a tape of me singing it you know, when I was trying to record it. And uh, so last summer, yeah, I decided to record it again. And, and I asked Jazzy if she would sing because we had yet to really re record our voices together. So. She said yes, and and then we did a little animation um, along with the the video, and I didn't know anything about that. So we they had discovered Barb Hoffman, and uh, I did the music part, and, and then Jazzy did her parts. On my course, on, we're on different coasts, and then. Um, Barb kind of put them together in Jazzy. It's wonderful. I love the way she just kind of appears and sings, um, sometimes two of her. And Trouble is the song by Cat Stevens, right? Yes. Beautiful yes. song, and yeah. I've loved it, yeah, half of my life. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, to be able to make a song, be able to do it with my daughter, uh, who I think is a, she is a full 
blown singer-songwriter of, of her generation. She's is an, an amazing artist. And uh, yeah, so there we are together doing this song that kind of from her childhood and that got me through a lot of bumpy places. Well, before we go, I have one last question yeah. for you, Jesse. Mm-hmm. If you could kind of sum up what music, the thread of music and being a musician has mm-hmm. meant to you through everything that you've gone through, mm-hmm. what has that really meant to you? Well, it's, you know, I really feel like it's what I came here to do. Um, I found my calling. And uh, all my test scores and uh, I always had high math scores, but I guess a lot of musicians are good at math, but uh, it comes to, you know, they always said I should be an engineer or something. And I, you know, and my dad went to Harvard and all this. And then my uncle spent his life at Yale teaching. uh, And my dad put him through college. He went, they were six years apart. And so there was a lot of, and I didn't, you know, for me to do this, to just kind of jump into this without really, and just do it. uh, I think when I was about 40, my dad said to me, you know, son, you got a lot of guts. I would have never gone into life without a degree, without some kind of path that was laid the way you jumped into music and made it happen. And uh, yeah, I think every man dreams about hearing his father say something like that to him, like, wow, son, you done good. It's wonderful. And Well, the world is a better place because you were musically in it. So. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm, it has been my great pleasure and honor to, I mean, to go into the, to go into the stay-at-home here in, in South Carolina, and sitting with Connie and trying to figure out, okay, yeah, I guess we're not going out to dinner. Um, what are we going to do? And Connie said, "Go get your guitar." Come on, I'll get my phone. We'll do a phone video. They'll play Sugar Babe or something like that. Which, because people are feeling weird, we feel weird. There's, <laughs> and there's a lot of people out there who are feeling just as weird as we do, and maybe we can, we can help. So we did that for three or four months uh, through that year, that first year of COVID, and I ended up making a a solo album, which I hadn't done since Solo City Boy. Um, and actually, I'm going back to work next week on um, volume two of Highway Troubadour, which is uh, will be more solo stuff. Uh, well, when that comes out, definitely let us know. Oh, I will. I will. Well, and thank you so much for taking this time to talk to us. It's been amazing um, hearing about your life, and, and uh, we wish you the best. And come see us in Memphis sometime. 
I will. We, we're going to come to Memphis when this, it gets a little less hairy. Uh, there, there's some things I want to do. Um, I might even go to Graceland. I mean, I loved Elvis. Uh, well, come on down, as they say in the South. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for yeah. your interest. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You have a great rest of your week. It's been so great having Jesse Colin Young on the show today. Founder of the Young Bloods and part of a generation inspired by Jack Kerouac's On the Road and Marlon Brando's The Wild One, Young most recently recorded a new version of the Young Bloods hit, Get Together, in 2021 with Steve Miller. And he's also playing and recording new music with his two kids, Tristan and Jazzy. You can learn more about what he's up to by visiting jessecolinyoung.com. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks for tuning in today. And we hope you'll join us again soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.